Today I'm up at a nearby regional park where it's uh, not too far from my house. It's in the San Francisco Bay Area and it's pretty simple to get to. So it's, it's a great way to just grab the camera, grab one lens, and go out and start shooting. This project's going to be a little bit different than the rest though because I'm not looking for a particular subject or a particular landscape feature. Today, I'm just simply shooting in black and white. You know, when you're out looking for subjects to shoot in black and white, everything's fair game. But but you can think in terms of black and white. If you think you want to shoot black and white, you can just can't just shoot normally because you no longer have color to help the viewer absorb that image. So what you're looking for is shadows. You're looking for light. You're looking for angles of light. And you're looking for textures. The most important aspect of this kind of shooting in each image is that you'll need to have a true black and a true white in the image. Since it's getting a little windy out here, and wind's not a friend of any audio recording, I'm gonna head back to the studio and talk a little bit more about how I got started in black and white photography. And it might help you to embrace this art form and try some black and white photography yourself. Hi, thanks for joining me. This is Terry Vanderheiden for the Nature Photography Podcast. My first introduction to black and white was also my first introduction into photography, and that was through my dad. He had converted a walk-in closet that was actually a closet in my bedroom into a fully functional darkroom. He put in a plumbing, electricity, small sink, and a counter that held the enlarger. In retrospect, it was pretty cool. He would go in there from time to time, and I never knew what he was doing, but we were told never to open the door without knocking first. And frankly, I never really paid much attention. I was about eight years old, and I started thinking, what is he doing in there? So one day I asked him, and he responded with, hey, why don't you come in and watch? The process in those days with film was that you would take your camera, and in his case, he used a 35-millimeter rangefinder camera, he would throw in a roll of 35 millimeter black and white film and shoot away. When he was done, he'd bring it into the darkroom and roll it onto a special roller. This part was done in total darkness. And I mean total darkness. You, you couldn't see a thing, not your hand in front of your face, nothing. So everything had to be laid out in advance so you wouldn't have to fumble around in the blackness. He'd feel for a pair of pliers to pry open the film canister and then gently pull the film out. Then he would fumble for the reel that he would roll the film onto and then close the roller inside of a small, lightproof tank. This rolling of the film was a little tricky, so it he would practice with the lights on in an old roll of film that he didn't care about to get proficient at rolling the film on before turning the lights off and going into total darkness. Once the film was inside the closed tank, it was protected from the light, and then he would turn the lights on and he'd process it. He'd pour in a series of chemicals that were all precisely mixed, measured, and heated to the proper temperature. Each of these chemicals were in the tank for a determined length of time. First was water. That was to get the film wet. Then the developer. The developer chemical interacted with the silver halides on the emulsion of the film to reveal everything that was exposed to light. 
it worked on all levels of gray in a black and white image, revealing the photograph or, or essentially making a negative. If you left the developer chemical in a tank too long, or if it was too hot, it would remove all the silver too fast and you'd end up with a clear piece of plastic. And that film would of course print as black. The next chemical was called a stop bath. This wasn't in the tank too long, but he poured it in just to stop the developer from working. Kind of how you might put, uh, say, hard-boiled eggs into ice water to stop the cooking process. Lastly was a chemical called Fixer. This would solidify the image onto the plastic base, so it would be more durable. Finally, there was a rinse to get rid of all the chemicals, and the film or strip of negatives was then hung out to dry. And you had to be careful that as you're hanging it, that it was in kind of dust-free area. Otherwise, little little bits of dust would cling to it. And so this, this was an important part. Once you hung it, you'd have to kind of leave the room for a while till it dried. This film development part was by far the most boring part for an eight-year-old, watching measured chemistry go in and out of a tank. So once the negatives were dry, that's when the fun part started. The printmaking process could be done in some light, usually in amber light, not very bright, but bright enough to see what you were doing. My dad would hold the negatives up to light and squint to see which image he wanted to make into an enlargement. Once determined, he would put that negative in a small tray that held it in place so he could put it into the enlarger and project that image down onto the tabletop. It was here that he focused the negative image so that it would be perfectly sharp from the enlarger onto the tray that would hold this light sensitive paper. Once everything was focused, the enlarger light would be turned off and a piece of light sensitive paper was taken out of a yellow box and slipped into the tray that was the perfect size for it. I remember I had to stay back so as not to jiggle the tabletop while the paper was being exposed. The enlarger was turned on in time so it wouldn't be on too long. This next part was the fun part. He'd slip that paper into the first of four trays and move it around with a pair of rubber tip tongs. Magically, we'd watch the white piece of paper become a black and white image before our eyes. Most of the time it was a picture of me and my brothers goofing off in the yard, but it was just a moment captured in time that we weren't even aware of. Like processing film, the, the next tray where the photograph would go was stop bath to stop the development. The next one was the fixer, and finally the last tray was the wash, where the print would spin around slowly from the gentle flow of water. Once it was washed properly, the print was then clipped to a wire that my dad had hung over the sink using a clothespin clip to clip it and let it dry. Once it was dry, you could handle the print, share it with other people, or hang it on the wall. At eight years old, this really stuck with me. It, it was magical. That pretty much started me on my way to loving photography. At some point, I ultimately got my own camera and started shooting myself. Because of the simple economics of being a teenager, I shot black and white film because it was much less expensive to shoot than color images. Also, I always had access to a darkroom so I could process my own film and make my own prints. Shooting all that film over the years in black and white taught me to see in black and white. And that's what I encourage you to try to learn. Today, everything we shoot, whether it's digital camera or iPhone, it's always coming out in color. So you're gonna get distracted by the color. You may not be looking at the form. You're not always looking for the composition. You're 
always going to be more drawn to the color. Most everyone likes a good sunset photograph. They can make our landscape images really stand out. However, a good exercise is to try to shoot a good sunset in black and white. In order to pull that off, you would have to consider the clouds in the sky, the subject in the foreground, and generally how it's all composed. We'll talk more after the break about seeing in black and white. As a professional photographer, I use Adobe Lightroom just about every day. I like it for organizing my images, and I try to do as much work in there as I can on those images before I take them into Photoshop. While Photoshop is a great program for editing your images, Lightroom is much faster. Like most photographers, I bring my selected images into the develop module and take care of the overall color and exposure. But the real workhorse I use is Lightroom's brush tool. In the brush tool, I can do just about anything I can do in the basic panel, but on a tip of a brush. If I want to tone down the highlights on a waterfall, I use the brush tool. If I want to enhance the eyes of one of my wildlife subjects, I use the brush tool. The biggest pain about this workflow is loading the brushes with the proper parameters each time. Luckily, Lightroom has brush presets, and I encourage you to use them yourselves. It does take time to build all the brushes you need for the kind of photography that you do. I concentrated on building brushes built just for wildlife and nature photography. Now I have all these brushes ready to go, and I'm offering these same brushes for you to use with your photography. For a limited time, I'm offering both my wildlife brushes and my black and white landscape brushes together for $19.99. They're regularly priced at $50. You can follow the links in the show notes or go to my website, imagelight.com. That's spelled I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com. Click on the digital products and order them right there. With every order, I'm also including exclusive access to video tutorials on how each and every brush works. So speed up your Lightroom workflow today by making your own preset brushes. Or you can support this podcast by purchasing mine. Either way, you'll like how it helps with your creativity and the final results out of Lightroom. If you start shooting in black and white and learn to see in black and white, you'll become a better photographer because you now have to consider all the aspects of a photograph and not just the color. So today out in the park, I was looking for forms. There are large bay and oak trees sprouting out of the ground and twisting their way up to the sky. These are interesting forms to compose with. They each have a strong texture to their bark and the lichens that are on the side of the bark, as well as the moss, these are all giving me all kinds of different tones. Again, I'm not looking at the color, I'm looking at the tones. I've got some white up in the lichens from a close-up view, and then it grades off, and then I can see some blacks that are in the shadows of the trees, of the, of the bases of the trees. I'm looking for sections that will render as blacks and whites. Today gave me an opportunity to shoot some nature photographs in black and white. It presses me into finding details and things that I'll, that'll make the photograph without relying on color to do the heavy lifting. I'm trying to see in black and white. After a while, you, you'll get this feeling. You'll look more for textures and a balance of gray tones. Even if you decide you don't like black and white photography as much, seeing things this way will make you a better photographer. 
One of the tools that can help you in seeing in black and white is changing your camera's picture mode to monochrome. In the Sony cameras, it's under creative style. In the menu of Nikon, it's picture control. And in Canon, it's called picture style. While the viewfinder will obviously show you what you're looking at if you're looking through a lens in a DSLR, when you shoot the picture and you look the back of the image when it comes up, it'll be black and white. So you can kind of test yourself as you go along and see how it's looking in black and white. If you're using a mirrorless camera that shows the screen in the viewfinder, that image will be black and white from the start as you look through the viewfinder. Now this is a big advantage for shooting with a mirrorless camera as it will really make you aware that you're shooting in black and white. Seeing your composition right there on the screen in black and white. It's pretty cool to be able to see what you've just shot and what you're about to shoot in black and white. Assuming that everybody is shooting raw by now, you're gonna have complete control of your image when you get to the processing. You can set your camera on RAW plus JPEG and get the RAW unprocessed version to work with and then the monochrome JPEG image to look at if that's going to help you. If you're not shooting RAW, get with it. The RAW file has so much more information than JPEGs do. RAW also gives you a wide amount of latitude in the processing of your images. If you're not sure you want to shoot RAW, do this simple test. Use an empty formatted card, go to your menu, then go to image quality and set your camera on JPEG normal mode. Then look to see how many photographs your card will allow you to store on it. Write that number down. In my camera's case, with the card I'm using, I can get 1400 images when I'm shooting in JPEG. Now there's a possibility that your camera's tally number will only show 99999. That's because it can only show four digits. So you likely can be shooting much more than say 10,000 images, depending on the size of the card that you've got installed. Write that number down anyway, or use a smaller card if you have one for this demonstration. Next, move your camera settings to shoot in RAW. Then look at your number and see how many images you can shoot. That number will be quite a few less. My camera says I can only take 310 images. That means the RAW files on my camera are more than four times larger than my JPEG files. Instead of looking at it that you don't get as many shots, Look at it that these RAW files carry more than four times the information, more detail, more latitude, more everything. There are two downsides to shooting in RAW mode. The obvious is that you'll need more cards to shoot on, or larger cards. And you'll need to have something like Lightroom or Photoshop to even look at your images. While JPEGs are essentially a universal digital photograph, a RAW file is just numbers you'll need a program for processing your raw files that can decipher what those numbers mean and produce a photograph for you. My choice for raw processing is Adobe Lightroom, but there are many out there to choose from. Now, back to the topic at hand. If you shoot raw, that file will not be converted into black and white when you open it. It'll be full color when you open it in Lightroom. That's where you'll convert it. Think about it like this. If you just let the camera make the conversion to black and white, such as in the JPEG mode, you're going to be stuck with whatever the camera can process in a second or two. If you shoot RAW, you'll have the control to convert it properly to black and white using the parameters that you want to use. You don't want to be just using a JPEG that's generated from the camera because all that camera is doing 
is essentially just taking the color out. And that's not a black and white. I see this all the time on social media. People are posting images that are not black and white. They're just essentially pictures without color. If you really had to label them, I'd say they'd be gray and gray images, not black and white. A true black and white image will always have a true black and a true white in the image. What we used to do in the darkroom to assure that we were getting a true black and white is we would process an unexposed sheet of paper. That would be our white baseline. This would be paper white. On that particular brand of paper, it could get no whiter. Next, we would take a piece of the same printing paper and bring it outside into the light and get it exposed to sunlight for a while. Then we would process that sheet normally. That would then be our pure black. That is our black baseline for that paper. Then on the prints we would produce, we would lay those two pieces of test print over and move them around till we could see if there was a white that would match the whitest white or a black that would match the blackest black. That way we knew we had the full range of black and white in our images. Today in digital photography, it's much easier because we have the tools built right into Photoshop and Lightroom to check to see if we have a true black and a true white on our images. Using the eyedropper tool and the info palette in Photoshop to find that zero rating for an absolute black and looking for the whites for 255 to get that absolute white. In Lightroom, we can use histograms and clipping warnings to let us know that we've got a true black and a true white in our images. As we process our images, we can make sure we're attaining the goal of making a true black and white image. It really makes a difference because you'll see that the deeper contrast in the images that covers all the tonal variations. I suggest you think in terms of black and white. Think the tones that you're working with when you're out shooting. When I was outside at the park, there was kind of a thin overcast, so I wasn't really getting strong directional light. If I were shooting a portrait or something, overcast light that's soft would be great because it's a smoother transition from light to dark, making less shadows under the eyes and the wrinkles and lines and faces would be so much more and less apparent. When you're out shooting in nature and focusing on just shooting black and white, your shooting light options may be expanded quite a bit. So as in color photography, shooting early morning and late afternoon is almost always the best. And that also applies for black and white photography. Not only is wildlife more active, but the lower light angle is better for showing off details that are visible and it's not quite as harsh. With wildlife, the lower angle of light will potentially light up the eyes of a critter where the light from midday might just shadow in the eyes and create a shadow from the animal's brow. Landscapes are always better at sunrise and sunset as well, both in color and black and white. However, when you're out shooting and seeing in black and white, you can take advantage of direct overhead lighting in the middle of the day. Where color images can come off too harsh, the contrast provided from the light in the middle of the day might be exactly what you're looking for in your black and white images. Many times you're looking for contrast, some sort of contrast. So don't let the time of day stop you from going out. Just about any time is good for shooting black and white. And in fact, you can even shoot night shots in black and white. The advantage of shooting black and white at night is that you might be using a higher ISO and you won't have to deal with color noise that can build up in those shadows. 
This noise and any other noise will be, will be kind of looked at as grain, that granular texture over the entire image that's even more apparent in the shadows. Grain was something that I always tried to avoid when I was shooting black and white film. At the time, the best we had for speedy film was only 400 speed film. So in today's vernacular, it'd be a 400 ISO. If we wanted the ability to shoot in lower light, we would use a technique called pushing the film. Even though the film was rated at 400, we would shoot it at double or triple speed, say 800 or even 1600, and then compensate for the change by altering the development times or the chemistry itself. This gave us the ability to shoot in lower light. We could then capture action at night, like football games or that kind of thing, without having to use a flash. The lenses back then weren't nearly as fast as they can be purchased today. And with digital photography, we have those high ISOs we can input whenever we need to to shoot in lower light. While film didn't give us much flexibility, nothing like we have today, it did teach us how to see in black and white. Once you got used to planning your images, knowing you only had black and white as an option, it forces you to compose better and plan for tones and shadows to tell that story. Once you learn how to process images from a color digital file to a good black and white file, dig into your archives and see if you have some images that might look good in black and white. If you find some files where the color is off or not helping the image, convert it and see what you might have. You might find that you can produce some gems that you've previously overlooked. If you get a chance, head over to my YouTube channel, Terry Vanderheiden, and check out my tutorial on how to use Lightroom to create real black and white images. There I will step you through on how to make those conversions right in Lightroom. So next time you're going out shooting, set up your camera and turn on the monochrome setting. That way you can see how you're adapting to black and white imagery. In fact, if you set up your camera to shoot both RAW and JPEG, when you load them in the Lightroom, you'll get the color RAW file that you can convert, and you'll be able to compare it to the JPEG that the camera made and the conversion you will no doubt see a big difference when you make the conversions yourself. In the next episode of the Nature Photography Podcast, I'm going to be heading to a place where black and white photography is king. I love it there, and we'll talk more about black and white photography. Thank you.